Part One, Chapter Ten of the Fur Country. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Fur Country by Jules Verne, Part One, Chapter Ten, A Retrospect. It was about ten o'clock the same night when Mrs. Barnett and Lieutenant Hobson knocked at the postern gate of the fort. Great was the joy on seeing them, for they had been given up for lost. But this joy was turned to mourning at the news of the death of Norman. The brave fellow had been beloved by all, and his loss was sincerely mourned. The intrepid and devoted Eskimo received phlegmatically the earnest expressions of gratitude of those they had saved, and could not be persuaded to come to the fort. What they had done seemed to them only natural. And these were not the first persons they had rescued, so they quietly returned to their wild life of adventure on the lake, where they hunted the otters and water birds day and night. For the next three nights the party rested. Hobson always intended to set out on June second, and on that day, all having recovered from their fatigues and the storm having abated, the order was given to start. Sergeant Felton had done all in his power to make his guests comfortable and to aid their enterprise. Some of the jaded dogs were replaced by fresh animals, and now the lieutenant found all his sledges drawn up in good order at the door of the encamp, and awaiting the travellers. The adieux were soon over. Each one thanked Sergeant Felton for his hospitality, and Mrs. Paulina Barnett was most profuse in her expressions of gratitude. A hearty shake of the hand between the sergeant and his brother-in-law Long completed the leave-taking. Each pair got into the sledge assigned to them, but this time Mrs. Barnett and the lieutenant shared one vehicle, Madge and Sergeant Long following them. According to the advice of the Indian chief, Hobson determined to get to the coast by the shortest route and to take a northeasterly direction. After consulting his map. Which merely gave a rough outline of the configuration of the country, it seemed best to him to descend the valley of the Coppermine, a large river which flows into Coronation Gulf. The distance between Fort Confidence and the mouth of this river is only a degree and a half, that is to say, about eighty-five or ninety miles. The deep hollow formed by the Gulf is bounded on the north by Cape Christenstein. And from it, the coast juts out towards the northwest, ending in Cape Bathurst, which is above the seventieth parallel. The lieutenant, therefore, now changed the route he had hitherto followed, directing his course to the east, so as to reach the river in a few hours. In the afternoon of the next day, June third, the river was gained. It was now free from ice, and its clear and rapid waters flowed through a vast valley. Intersected by numerous but easily fordable streams, the sledges advanced pretty rapidly, and as they went along, Hobson gave his companions some account of the country through which they were passing. A sincere friendship, founded on mutual esteem, had sprung up between these two. Mrs. Paulina Barnett was an earnest student with a special gift for discovery, and was therefore always glad to converse with travellers and explorers. Hobson, who knew his beloved North America by heart, was able to answer all her inquiries fully. About ninety years ago, 
he said, the territory through which the copper mine flows was unknown, and we are indebted for its discovery to the agents of the Hudson's Bay Company. But as always happens in scientific matters, in seeking one thing, another was found. Columbus was trying to find Asia and discovered America. And what were the agents of the Hudson's Bay Company seeking? The famous Northwest Passage? No, madam, replied the young lieutenant. A century ago the company had no interest in the opening of a new route, which would have been more valuable to its rivals than to it. It is even said that in 1741 a certain Christopher Middleton, sent to explore these latitudes, was publicly charged with receiving a bribe of five hundred pounds from the company to say that there was not, and could not be, a sea passage between the oceans. "'That was not much to the credit of the celebrated company,' said Mrs. Barnett. "'I do not defend it in the matter.' replied Hobson, and its interference was severely censured by Parliament in 1746, when a reward of twenty thousand pounds was offered by the government for the discovery of the passage in question. In that year two intrepid explorers, William Moore and Francis Smith, penetrated as far as Repulse Bay in the hope of discovering the much-longed-for passage. But they were unsuccessful, and returned to England after an absence of a year and a half." But did not other captains follow in their steps, resolve to conquer where they had failed? inquired Mrs. Barnett. No, madam, and in spite of the large reward offered by Parliament, no attempt was made to resume explorations in English America until thirty years afterwards, when some agents of the company took up the unfinished tasks of Captains Moore and Smith. The company had then relinquished the narrow-minded, egotistical position it had taken up, no, madam, not yet. Samuel Hearn, the agent, only went to reconnoitre the position of a copper mine, which native miners had reported. On November 6, 1769, this agent left Fort Prince of Wales on the River Churchill, near the western shores of Hudson's Bay. He pressed boldly on to the northwest, but the excessive cold and the exhaustion of his provisions compelled him to return without accomplishing anything. Fortunately, he was not easily discouraged and on February 23rd of the next year he set out again, this time taking some Indians with him. Great hardships were endured in this second journey. The fish and game on which Hearn had relied often failed him, and he had once nothing to eat for seven days but wild fruit, bits of old leather and burnt bones. He was again compelled to return to the fort a disappointed man. But he did not even yet despair, and started a third time, December seventh, seventeen seventy, and after a struggle of nineteen months, he discovered the Coppermine River, July thirteenth, seventeen seventy two, the course of which he followed to its mouth. According to his account, he saw the open sea, and in any case, he was the first to penetrate to the north coast of America. But the Northwest Passage, that is to say, the direct communication by sea between the Atlantic and Pacific Oceans, was not then discovered? "'Oh, no, madam,' replied the lieutenant, "'and what countless adventurous sailors have since gone to seek it. "'Fipes in 1773, James Cook and Clark in 1776 to 1779, "'Cootsbew in 1815 to 1818, Ross, Perry, Franklin, "'and others have attempted this difficult task, "'but it was reserved to McClure in our own day "'to pass from one ocean to the other across the polar sea.' 
"'Well, Lieutenant, that was a geographical discovery of which we English may well be proud. But do tell me if the Hudson's Bay Company did not adopt more generous views and send out some other explorer after the return of Hearn.' "'It did, madam, and it was thanks to it that Captain Franklin was able to accomplish his voyage of 1819 to 1822, between the river discovered by Hearn and Cape Turnagain. This expedition endured great fatigue and hardships, provisions often completely failed, and two Canadians were assassinated and eaten by their comrades. But in spite of all his sufferings, Captain Franklin explored no less than 5,550 miles of the hitherto unknown coast of North America. "'He was indeed a man of energy,' added Mrs. Barnett, "'and he gave proof of his great qualities in starting on a fresh polar expedition after all he had gone through.' "'Yes,' replied the lieutenant, "'and he met a terrible death in the land his own intrepidity had discovered. "'It has now been proved, however, that all his companions did not perish with him. "'Many are doubtless still wandering about on the vast ice-fields. "'I cannot think of their awful condition without a shudder. "'One day,' he added earnestly, and with strange emotion, "'one day I will search the unknown lands where the dreadful catastrophe took place, and—' "'And,' exclaimed Mrs. Barnett, pressing his hand, "'I will accompany you. "'Yes, this idea has occurred to me more than once, as it has to you. "'And my heart beats high when I think "'that fellow-countrymen of my own Englishmen are awaiting succour.' "'Which will come too late for most of them, madam,' said the lieutenant. "'But rest assured, some will even yet be saved.' "'God grant it, lieutenant,' replied Mrs. Barnett. "'And it appears to me that the agents of the company living as they do close to the coast, are better fitted than any one else to fulfil this duty of humanity. I agree with you, madam. They are, as they have often proved, inured to the rigours of the Arctic climate. Was it not they who aided Captain Back in his voyage in 1834, when he discovered King William's land, where Franklin met his fate? Was it not two of us, Deese and Simpson, who were sent by the governor of Hudson's Bay to explore the shores of the Polar Sea in 1838, and whose courageous efforts first discovered Victoria Land. It is my opinion that the future reserves for the Hudson's Bay Company the final conquests of the Arctic regions. Gradually its factories are advancing further and further north, following the retreat of the fur-yielding animals, and one day a fort will be erected on the pole itself that mathematical point where meet all the meridians of the globe. During this and the succeeding journeys, Jasper Hobson related his own adventures since he entered the service of the company, his struggles with the agents of rival associations, and his efforts to explore the unknown districts of the north or west. And Mrs. Barnett, on her side, told of her travels in the tropics. She spoke of all she had done, and of all she hoped to accomplish— so that the long hours, lightened by pleasant conversation, passed rapidly away. Meanwhile the dogs advanced at full gallop towards the north. The Coppermine Valley widened sensibly as they neared the Arctic Ocean. The hills on either side sank lower and lower, and only scattered clumps of resinous trees broke the monotony of the landscape. A few blocks of ice, drifted down by the river, still resisted the action of the sun, but each day their numbers decreased, and a canoe, or even a good-sized boat, might easily have descended the stream, the course of which was unimpeded by any natural barrier or aggregation of rocks. 
The bed of the copper mine was both deep and wide. Its waters were very clear, and being fed by the melted snow, flowed on at a considerable pace, never, however, forming dangerous rapids. Its course, at first very sinuous, became gradually less and less winding, and at last stretched along in a straight line for several miles. Its banks, composed of fine firm sand, and clothed in part with short dry herbage, were wide and level, so that the long train of sledges sped rapidly over them. The expedition travelled day and night, if we can speak of the night, when the sun, describing an almost horizontal circle, scarcely disappeared at all. The true night only lasted two hours, and the dawn succeeded the twilight almost immediately. The weather was fine. The sky clear, although somewhat misty on the horizon, and everything combined to favour the travellers. For two days they kept along the river banks without meeting any difficulties. They saw but few fur-bearing animals, but there were plenty of birds, which might have been counted by thousands. The absence of otters, sables, beavers, ermines, foxes, etc., did not trouble the lieutenant much, for he supposed that they had been driven further north. By overzealous tracking, and indeed the marks of encampments, extinguished fires, etc., told of the more or less recent passage of native hunters. Hobson knew that he would have to penetrate a good deal further north, and that part only of his journey would be accomplished when he got to the mouth of the Coppermine River. He was therefore most eager to reach the limit of Hearn's exploration, and pressed on as rapidly as possible. Every one shared the lieutenant's impatience and resolutely resisted fatigue in order to reach the Arctic Ocean with the least possible delay. They were drawn onwards by an indefinable attraction. The glory of the unknown dazzled their sight. Probably real hardships would commence when they did arrive at the much desired coast. But no matter, they longed to battle with the difficulties and to press straight onwards to their aim. The district they were now traversing could have no direct interest for them. The real exploration would only commence on the shores of the Arctic Ocean. Each one then would gladly hail the arrival in the elevated western districts for which they were bound, cut across though they were by the seventieth parallel of north latitude. On the 5th June, four days after leaving Fort Confidence, the river widened considerably, the western banks curving slightly almost ran due north, whilst the eastern rounded off into the coastline, stretching away as far as the eye could reach. Lieutenant Hobson paused, and waving his hand to his companions, pointed to the boundless ocean. End of chapter 10